Our study now is Luke chapter 5, 17 to 39. Luke 5, 17 to 39. We'll read a section at a time. The first one is verses 17 to 26. And it came about one day that he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And behold, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. And not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher right in the center in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of the reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise and take up your stretcher and go home. And at once he rose up before them and took up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And they were all seized with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. Well, Christ has been preaching and teaching in Galilee. And if we compare this passage with Matthew 9, 1-8 and Mark 2, 1-12, we know that he went to his own home or his own house in Capernaum because there, that's where he, his base was for ministry, the city of Capernaum. He went there and this incident is happening in his own home in that city, which is on the, on the edge of the Sea of Galilee in the area of Galilee. And it says in verse 17 that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. Notice who was invited or who was allowed at least to enter into Christ's house. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Jesus invited his enemies to come in and hear. And even, he knows what's going to happen, even to present a situation where a dispute will arise and Jesus will have to confront them on that dispute. And it also says in 17, the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. He knows the power of the Lord is present and he's about to use that power and he's going to use his power to humiliate his enemies, to confront them and to humiliate them. But also he's going to use his power to heal a man who was paralyzed, who, who uh, had great faith and even the men who helped him had faith, and Jesus saw their faith, and that, that's why He heals him. He not only heals him of the physical disease, but heals him of his spiritual disease. He heals the spiritual first, and then the physical. Verse 18, And behold, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. The issue here is that these men are trying to come to Christ because they know Christ it has the ability to heal him because they've heard and seen other miracles already. And this man is paralyzed. He cannot walk at all. So these men, according to Mark chapter 2, there were four men. Four men were helping this man on a stretcher. So there's five altogether trying to heal this one who is paralyzed. They're trying to uh, make room and come in front of Christ. The problem is that according to the other passages, there are crowds of people. There are a lot of people crowding in on the, in the house. They are in the house. They're outside the house. They're at the threshold. They're all listening and seeing what's going on inside the house with Christ. Those men could not penetrate that crowd, so they went up on the roof. Verse 19. And not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher right in the center in front of Jesus. On the roof they go. Now, these roofs, residential roofs in that area of the world, and many, actually many areas of the world, are flat roofs. And even sometimes in the United States, you have residential houses that have flat roofs. More often businesses are like that, but even residents 
and this is the way it was at that time. So when they went up there, there, there were tiles and perhaps even a door or a trap door for the people to get up there on the roof that way. So they went uh, from the roof and through the tiles. They probably made uh, more room according to the way um, Matthew describes it. They made more in order to be able to fit the stretcher uh, without making it vertical and all. They're able to fit it and they bring it down right in front of Jesus. Well, that takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of effort to do something like that. And Jesus knows this. Look at verse 20. And seeing their faith, he said, he saw their faith. Faith is something that's unseen. Uh, it's unseen because it's something that resides inside of us. It's a part of our spiritual nature. However, faith is seen by our deeds. It's seen by our works. This is what James means in James 2, 14 to 26, when he says that uh, he, he's challenging the person who just claims to have faith, but doesn't show that faith by the works. And in this case, however, we have genuine faith demonstrated by their works. They believed that Jesus was the Savior, that Jesus could heal of spiritual sickness and also physical sickness. But here, Jesus first addresses the spiritual. He first addresses the spiritual and says, your sins are forgiven you. He does that because that's his first and immediate need. But he also does it because Jesus intentionally does it that way in order for a dispute to arise because he knows that his adversaries standing there and sitting there are going to object when they know only God can forgive sins. We all know that. Psalm 51, 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. And Isaiah 43, 25, the Lord says through Isaiah, I, even I, am the one who forgives your transgressions. It is God alone who can and does forgive in the ultimate sense. So, Jesus says, you are, your sins are forgiven. So, naturally, that is all biblically true. And the scribes and Pharisees know this. Verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? What they say here is true about forgiveness of sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That is true. However, they wrongly concluded that Jesus was not God or did not possess a divine nature, that He was not the Lord in human flesh and able to forgive sins. That was their fault. Their fault wasn't believing that God alone forgives. Their fault was not believing that Jesus possessed deity and could forgive sins. So they accuse him of blasphemy. It would have been blasphemy if any other man were to forgive sins in this sense. But it's not blasphemy because it's Christ and Christ Jesus is the Lord. So they were wrong. They had a half-truth or they misapplied a truth. They did something wrong. There was something deficient and it was deficient enough that it was a sin against Christ. And even a sin against God the Father for them to reason this way and to misunderstand the identity of Christ. Not only the identity of Christ, but the ministry of Christ, the ministry of forgiveness. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, it says, uh, they were reasoning, verse 21 and verse 22, but Jesus, aware of their reasonings, they were reasoning quietly, probably just in their minds. And by their expressions, Jesus could tell that they objected. Jesus could tell also because he possessed deity, he knew what was going on inside their minds. He knew that they were accusing him of blasphemy. He knew that. Verse 22, notice though, Jesus did not keep quiet. He did not say, I'll address it at another time. He addressed it then and there. He knew there was wrong, and he addressed it then and there. One commentator that I read said that he did so because if they don't speak up in front of Christ, and Christ doesn't rebut them, then they're going to go to their quiet corners in their huddles with people who are going to think like them and they'll be able to slander him and Jesus will not be able to confront them. Them and the people 
that they try to influence. And it could be some of the crowd also. When Jesus is away from the crowds, they might try to go to the crowds and say, don't you realize he did wrong? He forgave sins and only God can forgive sins. They would speak a half-truth in, 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 the, in their quiet corners. So Jesus does not want this to happen. He wants the truth to be announced then and there. So verse 22, He answered and said to them. He gives an answer. But First Peter 3.15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. Jesus does this even though they did not speak up because it was necessary. We're all supposed to speak up when necessary. Verse 22, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Why are you cowardly? Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Don't you have a good answer? Why don't you speak up? Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Do you think that reasoning in your hearts itself is going to exclude you from the judgment of God? Do you think that when you just think something inside you that you're going to be released from punishment? That, God's not, that God doesn't know? And that you will not be held accountable? No, of course. They were reasoning in their hearts and Jesus exposes that. Then Jesus challenges them, 23. Verse 23, Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? Well, it's easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, in the sense that that's something unseen, and anybody could actually say that in the sense of claiming that He forgave people's sins. He could do that because that's something unseen and invisible. So in that sense, it's easier. But on the other hand, forgiveness of sins is harder when it is truly done. When it is truly done, there has to be repentance, and then God has to know and believe and announce that that is true repentance, and then announce the forgiveness of sins. In that sense, it would be harder. But then he says, or to say, rise and walk. Well, who can say, rise and walk to just anybody who's got an ailment? Who can say that? Nobody can. Not just anybody. There are false miracles, but that even is rare with the help of the devil to commit the false miracles. But it is rare, even more rare, for one who has the true power of the Lord to say to somebody, rise and walk. So in that sense, it's harder. But Jesus is going to prove that He can do the physically harder thing, the physically harder miracle, in order to prove that when He announced earlier forgiveness of sins, that that was true forgiveness. He's going to vindicate Himself by this physical miracle. Verse 24, this is what He's saying. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is saying this. If you don't have it clearly marked in your Bible, this, these are the words of Jesus. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know, I want to vindicate myself in front of you all that I have authority to forgive sins. So I'm going to do something. And then Mark tells us, he's, I'm sorry, Luke tells us, he said to the paralytic. That part, he said to the paralytic, is Luke telling us, what Jesus says in order to prove that He has authority to forgive sins. So what does He say then? I say to you, rise and take up your stretcher and go home. That's what He announced. In order to prove that He is able to forgive sins. And 25, And at once He rose up before them and took up what He had been lying on and went home glorifying God. At once, it says. Sometimes the Bible will say, or more often it will say immediately. In this case, at once. At other times, that very hour, meaning at that very moment, the healing took place. And when it takes place quickly like that, it's proof that it's the miraculous. It's proof that it came from God. It didn't take a week, a month, a year, or ten years to be healed. It took just a moment of time, at once. This should remind us of Genesis 1 verse 3. When God created the heavens and the earth, there were many miracles that He performed in the first six days of creation. 
For example, in Genesis 1, verse 3, he said, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. He said, Let it happen, and then it happened at once, proving that that was a miracle. And Jesus does the same here. So, the man obeys Christ. He rose up before them as an eyewitness, as a testimony. Everybody saw this. This did not happen in a dark and secret corner. There's no fictitious miracle going on here. There's no even magical or superstitious or devilish kind of miracle going on. Nothing like that's happening. It happened in front of everybody. It happened before them. He rose up before them and took up what he had been lying on and went home. He doesn't need it anymore, but he's got the strength now to carry it and go home. And what does he do? He does what he's supposed to do. He's glorifying God. He was created to glorify God. We're all created to glorify God. Either we will glorify Him by forgiveness and mercy, or we will glorify Him in judgment. Either way, we will glorify Him. We have to be in the good category. We ought to be in the forgiveness of sins and mercy and grace category and glorify God like this man, the, the paralytic, the healed paralytic was. But not everybody is that way. Not, look at 26 also. And they were all seized with astonishment and began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. The crowds also were all astonished, and they also glorified God. They couldn't do anything else. What else could they do? They couldn't attribute it to Satan. They couldn't attribute it to magic. They couldn't attribute it to anything else, psychological, because there were many people right there. They all saw what was happening. They were stunned by what happened. They were glorifying God because of this. They were filled with fear, and they acknowledged that remarkable things happened that day. So the testimony of all the people had to be to glorify God, to fear God, and to acknowledge that God's presence was in Christ. So there's nothing uh, sinister, nothing suspicious. Everything was out in the open, and they glorify God. This is the nature of true ministry. People who are doing true ministry do these kinds of things boldly, openly, honestly, without any deceit, without any cover-up. And the people who see it have to acknowledge that what's going on is true and right and honest and transparent. They have to acknowledge that. And when they acknowledge that, then they are able to properly glorify God, fear God, and say, this is unusual, and this is amazing, this is remarkable. That's the way it should be. But that's not the way it often is. When there are uh, false ministries, false teachers, they don't do it like this. They do everything in, in secret, behind the curtains. They are whispering, they're muttering, they're saying, let's do it this way and that way. They're talking in one another's ears. They're trying to cook up a scheme to deceive the people. This is the way it happens. They do that with their miracles. They do that with their teachings. They do that with everything. That's not the way it should be. Jesus proves himself to be a true teacher and to be the teacher from heaven, the Lord himself. Next, 27 to 28. And after that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and rose up and began to follow him. Here, the tax collector named Levi is in his tax office. Levi is also known as Levi, the son of Alphaeus, in Mark chapter 2, 13 and 14. And in Matthew 9, 9, he, Matthew calls himself Matthew. Matthew was more of his common name that everybody knew him as, and Levi was likely his birth name, his given name. Levi is, is a, a typical Jewish name. It was one of the sons of Jacob, and the tribe of Levi came from that. This is the same individual. Now, he was a believer before this incident. This is something that I'd like to spend a little bit of time on because often from Luke 5, 1 to 11 and Luke 5, 27 to 28, 
Interpreters say that this was the point when they believed in Christ. They weren't believers before this time. They weren't disciples before this time. I would rather say they were disciples and believers before this time, but at this point, they began to follow Christ as apostles, as uh, disciples and apostles who are following Him regularly. Let me uh, show that by taking us to a couple of passages. First is Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, verse 4. Acts 19, verse 4. Paul is talking to some disciples from Ephesus and explaining the ministry of John the Baptist. Acts 19.4, And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. John was baptizing a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Notice how explicit that is. Baptism of repentance, we know he preached repentance. And we also note here that he's telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him. And who specifically? Jesus. Not just anybody coming after him. He wasn't vague about it. We know from John 1.29, when he was telling his disciples, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's when Jesus was walking in their proximity, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Which by that declaration, John 1.29, we know he's preaching that this Lamb is going to be a sinless, spotless, perfect Lamb who has to die. He has to be like the Lambs of the Old Testament, an unblemished Lamb, physically unblemished, representing um, spiritual unblemishedness, that is, without sin. And the Lamb of the Old Testament had to be killed, had to be sacrificed, in the same way Jesus has to be sacrificed. According to Acts 19.4, this is the kind of thing John the Baptist was teaching people. Then, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Remember that Judas, he hanged himself, and they had to find a replacement to make the number of 12 from 11 to 12. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 1, 21. Acts 1, 21. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So when did Jesus go in and out among us? He explains. Beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. Then they uh, pray and select a replacement. Now, notice in verse 22, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. So that means the man that they replace here, or who is the replacement, has to be one who was also there when John the Baptist was baptizing people and even baptized Jesus, until Jesus ascended up into heaven. So this shows that they had to be believing in Jesus. They, if John is teaching and they are hearing John, they have to be believing in that, in, in Christ. And then one more place that, that we won't read because of the, the length of the passage is in John chapter 1, verses 35 until the end. In John 1, there we have Andrew and Peter at the baptism of John, Andrew and Peter, and then later Philip and Nathaniel, all who are saying, look, there's the Messiah, and they all are all meeting Christ, and they're acknowledging that He is the Christ, the Messiah, the one spoken of and written of in all the prophets of the Old Testament. They, they know all that. They know all that before they are called to be His apostles, such as we have here in Luke 5, 27 to 28. And in this case, specifically, Matthew or Levi. Then, notice that he's in the tax office, and presumably there would be other tax collectors there. We do know that Matthew or, and Levi, uh, they knew 
verse 29, they knew others because a great crowd of tax collectors and other people were in Matthew's office. They were, uh, I mean, sorry, Matthew's house. So likely he had others there in the office. In verses 27 and 28, however, it's Jesus said to him, there were other men there collecting taxes, but Jesus just called him out and called him to follow him in the ministry. And Matthew, being a believer, knew enough about Christ that he was willing to, to leave his profession. And it says in verse 28, he left everything behind and rose up and began to follow him. When it says he left everything behind, it doesn't mean he left his house behind, because we know that in verses 29 and 30, he's inviting people to his house later. He didn't leave his wife behind. He didn't leave his responsibilities behind in the domestic front. He just left his profession behind and everything associated with that profession and even the ill repute of that profession because they were notorious for exploiting the people, collecting more than they were supposed to collect and defrauding the people, stealing uh, both for, for, for themselves and for, for others and also for the government, taking more than they were supposed to take from the people. So they were notorious and nobody liked them, but Jesus selected him out of that. And when it says he left everything, that's what he left. He left, uh, left his office, his profession, and all the sin associated with that profession. That's what he left. A passage that teaches that the, the apostles of Christ took along a believing wife is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. When they went with Jesus from place to place, they took along a believing wife, it says. 1 Corinthians 9, 5. And I, I point this out because there are some who promote austerity and extreme poverty, and even to the point of abandoning their family and their marital and family responsibilities. That's not right, that's wrong, that's sinful, that's extreme, and it's not what, th this text is not proof for that kind of behavior. It's not that at all. We also note that Jesus, just as throughout history, God is in the business of calling people who are noble and ignoble, people who are honorable in the eyes of men and those who are dishonorable in the eyes of men. God is showing that it doesn't depend on honor in the eyes of men and it does not depend on dishonor in the eyes of men. God will call out people for himself from high ranks and low ranks, from those who live a blameless life to those who live a blatantly sinful life. The blameless life would be an example of Paul. Paul kept himself faithful to the law. Not that he was perfect, but he did not live in blatant sin, according to Philippians 3. As to righteousness found in the law, found blameless, he says about himself. So God is in the business of saving all kinds of people. This is another proof of that. 29 and following. 29 to 32. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at table with them. The Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now Levi, in his house, has a big reception or a big party for Christ, verse 29 says. It's for Him. It's for Him because He wants other people to interact with Christ. Now that Levi has come to have a close association with Christ, he knows that Christ is accessible in this way, especially towards His own disciples. We know that He was accessible to the twelve. He was more accessible to the three, Peter, James, and John. And most likely His best friend on the earth, was John the Apostle. In the book of John, John the Apostle is called the beloved disciple, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That phrase appears a few times there. So in this case, Levi takes the opportunity 
to expose Christ to other people. And the others are the tax collectors, and it says, and other people. According to Mark 2 and Matthew 9, these other people are called sinners. Sinners. The tax collectors, if they were going along with the crowd in their profession, they were sinning in terms of exploitation of the people and stealing their money. But the other sinners were all categorized in one group, such as the adulterers, the prostitutes, the drunkards, and everybody else like that, who more openly manifest the kind of sins that they commit. They're all categorized as sinners. These are the kinds of people that Levi invited to his house. And they're eating his food. They're interacting with Christ. The Pharisees and their scribes, that is, the scribes of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had a group among them that were scribes. That is, they transmitted the text of the Old Testament from Hebrew into newer manuscripts. They would copy and transcribe that, and they were responsible for that. So, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples. Here, they don't pick a fight with Christ. Perhaps they were silenced enough from the previous incident. But they do try to put a wedge between Christ and his disciples. Do you see this? Grumbling at his disciples. They're putting his disciples on the spot, trying to get them to say something or them to be dissuaded from following Christ and to follow them. They throw out this uh, dilemma to them in order to bring this wedge between them. Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Why are you doing that? You know we shouldn't be doing that. You know the tradition of the elders. You know we Pharisees, we don't do those kinds of things. We're, we're upstanding people. We stay away from those people. We don't talk to them at all. We don't try to help them. They're, they're, they're a lost cause. We're not going to do anything for them. But Jesus intervenes. They didn't ask Christ, but Christ spoke up. Because Christ knew what needed to be said. Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. We all know that, right? Those who are healthy don't need a physician. I know we have well visits these days, but usually people don't go to a physician unless they have a need. So this is common. This is a universal truth. Only those who are sick go to a physician. So in the same way, Christ, the heavenly physician, I have not come to call righteous men, but sinners to repentance. I didn't come to the earth in order for smug and proud men who think they're righteous for me to deal with them. I came to repentant sinners. I came to call sinners to repentance. Sinners who would hear the gospel, who would be moved and transformed by the Spirit, and who would believe and repent of their sins. I came for people like that. I didn't come for the self-sufficient ones. I came for the ones who would be sinners needing repentance, who would acknowledge their need of repentance, and then repent. I came for that purpose. Well, a couple of things we can learn from here. When it um, says here in verse uh, 30 that, G, that uh, they were picking a fight with the disciples, this is often what will happen. It will often happen that critics of Christianity will not go to the source, not go to somebody who knows, but go to somebody on the lower level who doesn't know and try to pick them off. The people who are wayward and straggling, people who are unsure if the gospel is true, they'll go and they'll try and persuade them, hey, don't, don't go listen to that, don't go to churches, don't listen to those people, don't read the Bible, don't believe it's true. They'll do things like that. This is, happens all the time. It happens all the time. And it has to be confronted. Then those who are more knowledgeable must speak up and not let the weak and the feeble-minded among us be persuaded to follow the world, to follow somebody else, to follow a false teacher. 
That should not happen. We have to have intervention. We need to have people who speak up boldly and speak the truth and convince people, those who are doubtful, those who are unsure, those who are ignorant, that this is the truth. No, have confidence in it and don't listen to those other people. In fact, make, uh, make a mockery of those other people, humiliate them, and show that those people cannot be trusted whatsoever. The other thing we can learn is the purpose of Christ. The purpose of Christ was not to call righteous men, but sinners to repentance. He came to call sinners to repentance. That's how he summarizes his ministry. He could have used many words to summarize it, and he does in other places. But in this case, he says, sinners to repentance. Which means that if anybody's preaching the gospel of Christ, and he's not preaching repentance, he's not preaching the gospel of Christ. He's not preaching the true gospel. Repentance requires a few things. It requires belief in the holiness and righteousness of God. It requires belief in the utter sinfulness of man. It requires courage on uh, in the preacher. The one who's proclaiming it has to have courage to be able to say to somebody, do you know your sin has alienated you from God? Do you not know that? What are you doing? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And God sends people like me. I don't like to say it because I know you might punch me in the face. I'm, I know you might spit at me. I know you might not be my friend anymore, but I have to tell you this. I have to tell you this because I love you. And in fact, I love you more than you love yourself. Because you haven't cared enough about your soul to repent of your sin. But now I'm making you aware of it. And I say this to you because of compassion and love for you. Jesus was this way, and that's the way we all should be. Jesus commissioned us to do so. Luke 24, Luke 24, 46. 24, 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This repentance for forgiveness of sins, based on the gospel, it sh should be proclaimed in Christ's name. So if we call upon the name of Christ, if we invoke His name in our preaching and teaching, then it has to include repentance to all the nations. That includes our nation, any nation. They need to hear of repentance. And who are the mouthpieces? Who are the messengers? You and I are, wherever we go. That means we have to also preach the same repentance. And a common misunderstanding of what repentance is. Some people think that repentance is simply a change of mind. Just a change of mind. You used to think Jesus was not Lord. Now you do think He's Lord. You did not used to believe in the deity of Christ. Now you do believe in the deity of Christ. You used to not believe in the sinlessness of Christ. Now you do believe in the sinlessness of Christ. Some people define repentance as being simply a change of mind, at, that is, a change in your knowledge base about who Christ was and is. But that's not biblical repentance. It includes that, no doubt, but that's not what it is. James 2, 14 to 26, James says, You believe God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. His point is, it's not enough for you to know the facts of God, the facts of Christ. You have to truly believe those. You have to trust in them and imbibe them, incorporate them by faith for your own life. If you don't, then you don't truly repent. You don't truly believe either. And then another misunderstanding about repentance. Some say that you can be a believer and receive salvation now, and later, you can be a disciple and repent of sins, whatever sins you want, later in life. That could be a year from now, ten years from now, or just a year before your death. And you can be a disciple that, at that point and repent of sin then. No. Both faith and repentance are required now, are required every day of our life of every person who claims the name of Christ. The Bible teaches both are true from the time of our conversion until the time of our coffin.
from uh, our rebirth and until we meet the Lord face to face. Okay, now the last section here is verses 33 to 39. The disputes don't end, you'll notice. And they said to him, they said to him. So his opponents are speaking now again and bringing up another controversy. The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. Now, these, the, the Pharisees and the disciples of John, they did not agree with each other because John railed against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and everybody. He railed against them because of their sin and they wouldn't repent and believe in John. So, they use the name of John in order to trip up Jesus and his disciples. So, you've heard this phrase, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. They are employing that tactic right here. They don't usually agree, but they're, they're trying to cite John's disciples so that they can trip up Christ when John's disciples would not agree with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees would not agree with John and his disciples. But they do it here. This is often the way the, the worldly and devilish tactics are. So, they bring up this controversy. When John's disciples fasted and prayed, they did so because John was a prophet, and John's ministry and the people who followed him was this kind of ministry. So there was nothing wrong with that. John did not do it in the extreme way. He fasted and prayed according to moderation, according to the proper way. But here it says that Pharisees also do the same. John's disciples did it because they did it in faith. The Pharisees, when they did it, they didn't do it in faith. They were doing it for work. They're trying to say, look how good I am, God. You should, uh, I should be in, in heaven. Like Luke 18, 9 to 14 the Pharisee says, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. I'm not like this tax collector over here, but the tax collector says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. So the Pharisees were doing it because of good works. They thought they could earn the favor of God by their works. But now, what's the problem? Jesus' disciples, Jesus and his disciples, they eat and drink. They eat meat meaning they eat meat and they drink wine. The others did not do that. They restrained, at least for, for a time they did, at least the, the Pharisees would restrain themselves at, at a time for those things. But Jesus' disciples did not do that because Jesus didn't fast. 34. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Well, Jesus compares himself to a groom at a wedding, and it's feast time. He's saying, right now, my ministry is different from John's, and while I'm doing this ministry, you can't expect at a wedding for people to fast. Who fasts at a wedding? That's not a wedding anybody wants to attend. When you go to a wedding, you want good food to be there. You want to celebrate because a good foundational aspect of creation and society is happening before your eyes. Two people are getting married. A man and a woman are getting married. So we should celebrate that. And with celebration comes food. Jesus' point is that he is a groom, and during his ministry, he wants it to be this way. It also so happens that Jesus uses this as an example uh, he says in Matthew that John did not come eating and drinking, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. His point being, the method of ministry that we conduct, it doesn't help. You people are so stubborn and obstinate, so evil in your sin, does, the way that we do ministry doesn't matter. Nothing is going to persuade you. You're going to be a fault finder, make excuses to reject the gospel either way. 
That's the way you people are. Well, but Jesus is not against fasting, and of course he's not against praying. He says in 35 that when the bridegroom is taken from them, then they will fast in those days. And we, we do know from Acts 13 that they were fasting and praying and trying to discern who should be appointed to go on the missionary trip. So fasting is not uh, uncalled for in the Christian life, and this is what Jesus means here. A time will come when he, even his own disciples will do so, but now is not the time. Then he says, he announces this parable in verses 36 to 39. It's actually a couple of parables that he puts together, illustrating the same truth. That is, they, they want to mix their human traditions, the traditions of men, with the commandments of God. And when they try to mix it, it creates trouble. It creates a problem. It creates a dilemma that they should not be broaching. They should not attempt to do that. That's what he's illustrating here. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. We know this, right? An old garment has been washed and worn. It, it has come to fit the, the size of, of, its, of its wearer and we, it becomes comfortable. But when there needs to be a patch on it, nobody's going to put a new patch on it in such a strict way on the outside and create a tear on that garment. Not like that. You're going to find something, if you're going to put a patch on it, something that you know will not cause a problem for that old garment. And what is the old? The old garment that's tried and tested? That's the Bible, the commandments of God, the Old Testament. But what did they do? What did they try to put new after the commandments of God? Their human traditions. And they are trying to say, oh, no, no, these traditions, human traditions, yeah, they're not found in the Bible, but they don't contradict the Bible, then they're not going to harm the Bible. That's their claim. But Jesus says, no, it will harm it. And then the second illustration, 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. In this case, wineskins were used in order to preserve the, the wine. And if you're going to keep the wine in the wineskin for a long time, the new wine will expand as it's uh, there in the wineskin. And if it expands, the new wineskin has to have the ability to expand with the new wine. With the old wineskins, it's already been expanded, and you can't put new wine in it. Otherwise, you're going to make it expand more than it is capable of expanding, and then it's going to burst. Same thing. You think your new commandments, your commandments of men, are okay? That they will not harm the commandments of God? They do not controvert the commandments of God? There's no way you're going to say you're disobeying the commandments of God with these new commandments? But that's not true. You are. You are harming the old commandments of God. 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says, the old is good or good enough. And if we are accustomed to the old wine and we know how good it is, we won't want the new wine. Typically, the old wine is better than the new wine. And people, if they are accustomed to the old, they don't want the new. Well, in the same way, if we are accustomed to the commandments of God, we know what the Word of God says, we won't be clamoring and we won't want to imbibe and taste that those new commandments of men. They will be repulsive to us. We don't want anything to do with them. We know what the Bible says. We don't want anything to do with false teaching. We don't want anything new and strange and every wind of doctrine. We want the old doctrine, the doctrine of the Bible. We want the old paths, the old highway. That's the highway of holiness that we want. We don't want to go on bypaths. We don't want to go and be led astray. 
We want to have the old. That's what those who are seasoned, those who have tasted, those who know, they know better. They're going to stick to the Bible and not anybody else. That's what they'll do. Well, in the same way, we have to learn to stick to the Bible. It's very, very easy for us to be intrigued by modern books, by modern preachers. It's very easy for us to be intrigued by fads and winds of doctrine. It's amazing how, how often, uh, as we read and, and study and get more and more educated, we might study psychology and we think that the latest psychology book has all the answers in the world. We might study biology and we might think the latest biology book has all the answers in the world. The latest philosophy book, the latest anthropology book, the latest sociology book, or any other field. The latest and the greatest must be the best. After all, my teacher taught me, and I got a bachelor's degree from it. My teacher taught me, I got a master's degree, I got a PhD, and I got a PhD from a reputable institution. Therefore, they must know what they're talking about. But what ends up happening is that those books, the contents of those books, undermine the Bible. Those books, nine times out of ten, even 99 times out of 100, those books, in one way or another, will undermine Holy Scripture. And the problem that we have to face is, in order to withstand that, we have to know what's in the Bible. We have to be experts in the Bible, knowledgeable about the Bible, not those books. Yeah, we need to know about those books, but we don't need to be experts in those books as much as we should be experts in Scripture. Be an expert in what the Bible says, then you'll be able to deal with everything that comes your way. The Pharisees would not do that. The Pharisees would not. And this is what Jesus is confronting. We must be that way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.